Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask him to bless us and guide us. Father in heaven, we love you. And we're grateful for your heart, a heart that you have revealed to your creation, a heart that you have revealed to your people. God, help us to see it clearly and help us to run after it. God, help us to see your goodness and all the different ways that it reveals itself in this life, that we would so also be motivated, God, to care about and love the things that you love, that we would be able to, to rise up as your people and to pursue a sort of justice that is only truly achieved through you and your grace and your mercy. Give us wisdom as we try to do that, both co collectively and corporately as well as individually. And Father, we know that one of the ways that we pursue that is by continually coming to your word as, as servants, being submissive to your authority, to your power, to your plan. And so now, Father, as we open up the scriptures, let your spirit fill our hearts and souls and mind, God. Allow these words to become living and active, that it would pierce us in a way that helps refine us and mold us and shape us into the people that you desire us to be. God, may we come to you now expectant and eager to learn and to be submissive to the good, pleasing, perfect will that you've put before each and every one of us in Christ. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. So uh, earlier this week, I got a text message from my mom that said, hey, I need you to call me when you get a chance. I think James's iPad has been hacked. And when I got the, uh, the text message, I thought that was a, a peculiar statement because I thought, how would she know if James's iPad was hacked? He's at school. He's not even on his iPad. So I was a little confused, gave her a phone call. And what she proceeded to tell me was that she was getting hundreds of emails, not like a dozen, like hundreds of emails in her inbox. And several of them were addressed to James. And so she was worried maybe he had gotten on an app or subscribed to something. And I listened to her explain the situation. I said, well, mom, if all those emails are going to your inbox, you probably got hacked, not James, right? Like they have your information. And uh, as the week progressed, we discovered that's exactly what had taken place. She has literally received like thousands of emails every day. Like she would text us throughout the way, I just got another 1,395 emails today. And as she started trying to sort through all of those details, she was on the phone with Google for like several hours and all these sorts of, of challenges and difficulties. Another thing she discovered is that her credit card information was compromised as well and that this was kind of part of the scheme because one of the emails uh, referenced her credit card information but I guess the way that these hackers or these systems work is that then they flood your inbox with thousands of emails so you miss the important one. And so she's been dealing with a whole lot of fun uh, the last several weeks and, and kind of this digital experience of identity theft, which reminded me of a similar experience that I went through, though a slightly different way several years ago. Jennifer and I had been gone for the Christmas break, came back home, and as I checked the mail, I had, gosh, I don't know, dozens of letters from banks all over the country, thanking me for opening up a new account. And I was like, I, I didn't do that. What is going on here? And so I had to start calling all these banks and discovered that whoever had captured my identity, had my name, had my birth date, had my social security number, I don't know how they got it all, but they got it. And so I put an initial freeze with the credit agency that lasted for three months. And then as soon as it went away, like got more letters and they kept opening up more accounts. So I actually went to the highest level that you can where apparently the credit agencies say, if you can file a police report, we can put a freeze on your account for seven years. So I went through all this process just to protect my identity. 
right? And, and to go through, it was incredibly inconvenient to deal with this identity theft. And, and I share those two anecdotes with you this morning because it, it gives a couple of things that I want you to consider. Number one is, how do we define our identity, right? It's, it's what does it say when we live in a culture where your identity can be wrapped up in a simple email address and a few numbers that we call a social security number and entire banks and institutions can misrepresent who you are. Somebody can completely misrepresent themselves and claim to be you just because they know a few simple numbers. It's interesting how we define ourselves and identify ourselves and how our society operates. that. There are so many questions in our society that are centered around this question of identity and how we identify, be it based on our gender, based on our age, based on our political affiliation, so many different ways that we try to better understand identity and are constantly asking this question of who am I? And a lot of those ways that we define our identity in our culture are fairly shallow because they can be hijacked so easily and you can be misrepresented in so many different ways. So that isn't surprising then that we wrestle with those questions and struggle with better understanding of who we are in our identity. But the other reason I submit those kind of simple stories to you this morning is this idea of identity theft. And I don't know if you've gone through a similar experience like that before, but even if you haven't, I am here to tell you today that we have all been victims of identity theft. Now, you may not realize it, you not, may not be aware of it, because it may not have happened in the physical realm. But in the spiritual realm, it's something we've all been victim to. Right, that part of what we believe inherent to this gospel is that we were created and, and subjected to a life of sin in death, and that the world robbed us of our true identity, stole it, and directed our lives and our existence on an ignoble path, and that part of what we're trying to discover, especially when we talk about this idea of renewal and a renewed life, is to break free from that theft, to break free from that misdirection of our purpose in our life and discover our true identity in Christ. That's going to be a huge part of what we focus on this morning. And we're going to use Romans chapter 1 to do it. So grab your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 1. You're going to hear me say that a lot this year. We have finally arrived. And as I told you when we introduced this theme several weeks ago, Romans would be kind of the anchor for us this year. And we're going to use it extensively. We introduced this whole subject by actually starting with Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, to introduce this theme of renewal and what it means to live a renewed life or to live as God's renewed people. And what we extracted from verses 1 and 2 in the book of Romans are these characteristics of devotion, discernment, delight, right? That those are some key characteristics of a renewed life. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying those are all the characteristics of a renewed life. There's so many other aspects to a renewed life that we're going to discover as we go through this journey throughout the year. But I felt like those were good introductions and they serve as a good kind of guide and, and framework for us to navigate this conversation of a renewed life. After we introduced that by using Romans 12, we spent the last two weeks by looking at the stories of Ruth and Naomi as a testimony of what renewal can look like and how God comes in and restores and changes people. And so now having those things established, we're going to go to Romans chapter 1. And we're going to look just at the first verse today. And really for the next couple of weeks, we will use this as somewhat of an introduction to the letter as a whole. And we're going to answer a couple of important questions. Anytime you pick up a book or you start reading a new section of scripture, there are questions that can help you better understand 
those texts and those passages. Uh, the questions that we're going to be working through for the next couple of weeks. Today, we're going to consider who wrote the letter, authorship. Who is this individual, this Paul, that is sitting down to write this letter? What do we know about him? Next week, we're going to ask who's receiving the letter? Who are the recipients of this letter? What do we know about this church and what they were facing and, and the audience that is about to be spoken to through Paul? And then after that, we'll have a chance to, to kind of wrap up this introduction two Sundays from now by focusing in on some of the important themes that are going to be pretty demonstrative throughout the course of the letter that kind of serve as that thread that ties so many other things together that will help us better understand and approach the content and the details that will follow. And so we're going to take some time to really kind of introduce and better understand this letter. And so today we start with that initial question of who wrote it. So if you have your Bibles there and you're looking at Romans 1 verse 1, the very first word that you see is Paul. There's your answer, right? You're dismissed. Good job. It's good to come here today, right? Paul. And one of the things you see at the beginning of this letter is that the ancient letter writing practices are slightly different than our own. Right? The way that we write letters is we tend to sign our letters at the end, which is kind of odd to me now that I think about it. Right? I, I kind of prefer the ancient letter writing practice that identifies the sender at the very beginning so that if you're receiving it, you know who this is from. And so that was the common practice in writing ancient letters uh, was you would identify yourself as the sender at the beginning. And so Paul is making it very clear at the very beginning, I'm the one who wrote this. Right? And that is the answer of authorship for us. And I will tell you, uh, that many other letters in the New Testament, there are some questions and debate about who really sat down and who really wrote it. Those questions aren't really in, in place here for the letter to the Romans. Most scholars, most theologians embrace a Pauline authorship for this letter. Right? It's not really called into question. And, and so what is interesting about that is that as you and I start to approach and answer this question, who wrote this letter, I think it goes without saying that we can already identify that Paul is a central figure in the New Testament. If you're familiar with the New Testament at all, he is front and center in so many ways, especially with the formation of the church, a central figure in the book of Acts. He is the author of a majority of the New Testament letters that we find. And so as a result, most of us probably have a certain degree of familiarity with Saul and with Paul and his story. And yet at the same time, because we have that familiarity, I don't know that we really stop and reflect and evaluate the depths of what took place in his life and how it informed his writings, right? So the better we understand the man and his story and his testimony, the better we'll understand the letter to the Romans. And so that's what I want us to do a little bit of today. Let's get a better understanding of Paul. Let's get a better understanding of the story, one that is likely somewhat familiar, but also demands a certain level of reflection, so when you first are introduced to Paul, you're introduced to somebody with a different name, right? Initially, he goes by Saul, and we find an introduction to his story in the book of Acts. You don't have to turn there. <clears throat> I'm just going to paraphrase it for us this morning. But the first reference occurs in Acts chapter 7, verse 58. <clears throat> and this is on the heels of the end of the story of Stephen, right? So Stephen was a follower. He was a disciple and he's brought before the Sanhedrin, and he's being questioned for uh, his motivation for sharing this news that Jesus is the Messiah. And as he goes through this eloquent and lengthy, um, really kind of gospel presentation and a review of the history of Israel, near the end of, of Stephen's declaration to the Sanhedrin, listen to how he closes things off at, towards the end of chapter 7. He says, you stiff-necked people, 
You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one, and now you have betrayed and murdered him. He doesn't doesn't pull any punches, man. He takes the gloves off. After recounting all these prophets who were killed, he then looks at the Sanhedrin and says, just like your ancestors who killed the prophets that predicted the coming of the righteous one, you've betrayed and killed him. That wasn't exactly what they were looking for. That wasn't the answer and response they wanted from Stephen. It, It lights a fire within them. The scriptures tell us that they become furious, filled with rage, yelling at them. They rush at Stephen, drag him out of the city, and begin to stone him. Stoning was a vicious execution, right? And so in the middle of the description of this execution of Stephen, who will ultimately be the first martyr of the church, we are told in Acts chapter 7, verse 58, that the witnesses that were there laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And that's the introduction. And as you read just another couple of verses into the beginning of Acts chapter 8, verse 1, it references that Saul approved of the killing. And so our introduction to this man is one that stands in approval over an execution. Right? And after that persecution of Stephen, a great persecution breaks out across the church. That's what we're told in Acts chapter 8. This is when the church is scattered, and ultimately kind of how it begins to take the gospel to Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Right? And, and so as that scattering takes place, and we're seeing that this great persecution breaks out in Acts 8 verse 3, we find that the central figure of that persecution is Saul. Here's what it says. Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Showing no regard for gender or responsibility, he is constantly pursuing and throwing people in prison and, according to the Scripture, seeking to destroy the church. So as you can continue through Acts chapter 8, the story kind of deviates to focus in on Philip and how that gospel begins to spread to Samaria. And then Acts chapter 9, we return to the story of Saul. And again, we get a great description of who he is. At the beginning of chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, it says, Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And so what we have here is summarization of this Saul who we've been introduced to as a man who stands in approval over the execution of another, one who is seeking to destroy the church, and who is breathing out murderous threats against those who belong against the way, or belong to the way. This is Saul. And I'm sure that we're somewhat familiar with that story. But have you really thought about the level of hostility and hatred that is being conveyed to us in those verses and what that represents? I started reflecting on that and I thought, what would be an equivalent today? Do we have a modern day picture of a Saul or the heart of Saul? And as I was reflecting on that, it just so happened that um, news came out this week of a recent U.S. operation Uh, that was carried out in Syria to take the life of the most recent ISIS leader. And I was brought all back 
to some of those early reports of ISIS when it really began to make some momentum and movement across our world. Uh, the, the leader that was recently killed in this most recent attack, I, don't, I can't pronounce the whole name, I believe the final part of it is Al-Qureshi, um, the most recent leader who had followed al-Baghdadi um, back when it really began to take some momentum earlier, about five to seven years ago. And our nation's response to the threat of terrorism at the hands of ISIS has been swift, it has been decisive, it has been forceful, to the point that I would imagine many of us probably don't share the same level of concern that maybe we did initially, um, but even still, just this recent report reminds us that it is still a concern that exists to our world. But it made me reflect upon some of those early reports and some of those early stories. And I don't know about you, I don't know how much you followed it or were familiar with it, but I'll never forget the report that really kind of shook me to my core and that I, I absolutely was, was horrified by was the report back in February of 2015 when 21 Coptic Christians from Egypt were taken to the beaches of Libya and executed. And just a few months after that, there were reports of a very similar form of execution of numerous Ethiopian Christians. All of it caught on video and shared for the world to see. It was horrific. I mean, there, I, don't, I don't have another word to describe it. And, and while I never really watched the videos or any of those things, I would read the reports, and I went back this past week to kind of re-familiarize myself with some of the details of that particular story. And in one of those videos, I believe it was the second one that, that referred to the Ethiopian Christians and their execution, there is a man who is obviously speaking in the middle of this horrific scene and sharing a message that they want the world to hear. And, and these are, this is a direct quote from what was offered in that video. To the nation of the cross... We were back again on the sands where the companions of the prophet, peace be upon him, have stepped on before, telling you, Muslim blood that was shed under the hands of your religion is not cheap. In fact, their blood is the purest blood because there is a nation behind them which inherits revenge. And we swear to Allah, the one who disgraced you by our hands, you will not have safety, even in your dreams, until you embrace Islam. That, to me, is a representation, a modern-day representation of one who stands in approval over the execution of others, seeking to destroy a church, and one who is breathing out murderous threats against those who belong to the way. It's the heart of a modern-day Saul. And so when people heard about Saul back then, that's what they heard. That's the fear. That's the horror that captured them. Now, you and I live with those threats today, and we kind of entrust it to areas of diplomacy and to our nation to, to give us a sense of peace and safety and concern. And so we can often equate those moments and those concerns as an enemy of the state and a battle that is waged between governments. And that's kind of where we leave it. And yet what we should do, a lot of times when we hear things like that is grieve because it's a picture of a stolen identity, a life that never got a chance to discover who they were intended to be in Christ. 
And I want us to imagine how remarkable it would be to hear a testimony all of a sudden that someone like an al-Qureshi or an al-Baghdadi that lived leveled out that amount of fear and hostility and that sort of atrocity against the church to all of a sudden hear conversion and transformation to the extent that they would fearlessly preach the gospel that they were persecuting and become even more influential than a Billy Graham. Imagine that. And I would imagine that for many of us, it's hard for us to picture that. We're almost skeptical as to whether or not that could ever happen. And that's exactly the sort of transformation that took place in Saul's life. How? How did it happen? Right? How did that take place? And that's what we see as the story continues. He's on the road to Damascus with this sort of hostility in mind when all of a sudden that light appears and he hears this voice, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And his answer is profound. Who are you, Lord? What I love about that answer is that it reveals to us that Saul had no doubt in his mind that the weight of that moment, the appearance of the light, the majesty of the voice, he knew that whoever was speaking to him was undeniably Lord. The problem was he didn't know who it was. Who are you, Lord? How many of us are asking that same question? How many of us are going through life, man, we know the details of Jesus, we know the story, we've heard some of those things that have been reported, but ultimately when we try to figure out who we are in the life that we're living and we encounter any sort of manifestation of power, intrigue, or mystery, our ultimate question is, who are you? We have no idea who he is. We're trying to figure out our life without having that question answered. And the response is so beautifully simple I'm Jesus. <laughs> there it is, in a beautiful story, a beautiful testimony. You want to know who is the Lord of all? Jesus. There is no other name. Revealing himself in this moment to this man, Saul. I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. So he instructs Saul to, to go and to wait. And after this encounter, as you heard earlier in the children's message, Saul couldn't see, wouldn't eat or drink for three days. And so then the Lord appears to a man named Ananias. And I love the contrast that we have here in this encounter with Ananias as the voice, the Lord, speaks to Ananias and calls him by name, Ananias. And the response is immediate and decisive. He says, yes, Lord. Knows who's speaking. Is ready and willing to respond. Is that you? You identified in a moment. And is your response, yes. And Ananias knows the voice of the Lord, recognizes him in response. And so the Lord tells him, I need you to go to the house on Straight Street. Ask for a man there from Tarsus named, named Saul. He's had a vision that somebody by the name of Ananias is going to come and lay hands on him and restore his sight. So imagine getting that, that command, that vision. Right? I've got to give credit to, to Ananias right, because he at least just asked for clarity and confirmation. Are you sure? Right, I've heard of this man. I, I know what he's doing. Is that really the one that you want me to go to? I mean, imagine, again, let's take a modern-day example, and let's say that you heard some vision, go to al-Qureshi, go to al-Baghdadi, 
lay hands on him. He's had a vision for you. The fear and uncertainty that would hit your heart. I mean, I got to give credit to Ananias for just asking for clarity because I guarantee you if it had been me, I would have been like, nuh-uh. Nope. You could ask somebody else. I mean, I, truly, y'all, let's be honest. I would have been teared, scared to death. And Ananias was courageous enough that he did, after asking for clarity, he was going to ultimately be obedient. Now, part of the reason for his obedience is that God reveals to Ananias exactly his plan for Saul. He says, no, go. This man is my chosen instrument to be a light to the Gentiles. That becomes incredibly important for us to understand why Paul is writing the letter to the Romans. Right? We're understanding his purpose and God's plan in his life. He was God's chosen instrument to be a light for the Gentiles. God says, I'm going to show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias goes and goes and embraces in the presence of this man who was standing in approval over executions, one who was seeking to destroy the church, one who was breathing out murderous threats, and Ananias calls him brother. Calls him brother. Lays his hand on him. Scales fall from his eyes, and he can see. And immediately, after going three days without food and drink, you know what he does? He gets baptized, and then he eats. I love that. I love the order there. He gets baptized, and then he eats. And a lot of times, that's where we stop the story. Right? The conversion is done. The decision was made. Paul walked down the aisle. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Amen. He's been dunked. Let's go. But what's really amazing is that after spending some time with the disciples there in Damascus, he immediately begins preaching in the synagogues, <laughs> declaring that Jesus is the Son of God, immediately. So imagine that, like, mind just craziness, right? If you're sitting there and you're Jews, you're like, wait a second, you, you were on our side just a moment ago, and now you're here arguing that this man is the Son of God? Like, what in the world has happened? And that shift is so problematic and so disconcerting that the Jews began to conspire to kill him. So he has to flee the city. So he goes to Jerusalem, and interestingly enough, while he's in Jerusalem, he wants to come alongside the disciples, and they won't receive him because of his reputation. They refuse to do anything with him, but Barnabas is courageous enough to take him in and take him to the apostles, and they hear more testimony to what he's been doing. And so then, what does he do? He continues to preach boldly about Jesus. He begins to debate with the Hellenistic Jews that Jesus is the Son of God, and they conspire to kill him. Now, I go to that level of detail this morning because I want you to see what took place as soon as Paul experienced this renewal and this renewed life. In some ways, he ended up becoming somebody without a home, without a community, right? Like the, the people that he used to belong to now want to kill him. And the folks that he's now trying to become a part of, they don't trust him. They're skeptical. And so a couple of takeaways for us in, in that little reality there. Number one, from a church standpoint, a lot of times we are guilty of questioning and demonstrating skepticism at the renewal of God. Right? We will look at people's past. We'll look at their mistakes. We'll look at their sins. We'll be like, yeah, I don't know if I really believe it. And we'll be resistant and skeptical, and we will close them off from the very community that they need. Because somehow we've tricked ourselves into thinking that this is a place for people that are perfect and have it all put together as opposed to a place for people that are broken 
and are coming from sin. Let us not be skeptical of the renewing power of the gospel. Let us embrace transformation in the lives of others. Let us be courageous like Ananias and Barnabas and respond to those people by calling them brother, sister. And at the same time, when you go through renewal and you go through that transformation, it's a good warning that yes, you may find that sort of rejection from the world, that sort of hostility from the world. The minute you try to break free, it will come after you. And you may not always have that warm embrace that you're hoping for and looking for in the community. So how are you gonna navigate those things? Well, the way that Paul navigated it was understanding his true identity in Christ. And we get such a crystal clear and eloquent picture of his understanding of his identity in Romans 1.1. Let's read it together. Romans 1.1, he says very clearly and succinctly, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Man, I love that. I love that opening line. And, and it's, again, very uh, similar to uh, a way that we would sign off a letter today, right? If I were to write a formal business letter or every email that you get from me right now has the similar conclusion, in his grace, Jeremiah Smith, pastor, University Baptist Church, right? We often include these additional details when we sign off these letters to kind of convey our identity and who we are, right? Paul's doing the same thing. What's so convicting and interesting is that, again, when you think about how we often define ourselves and answer questions of our identity in our society, it's often very shallow and surface level. And, and we're identifying ourselves based on our jobs and the companies we work for. Think about how different you would think of yourself if you consistently signed off an email or a letter or whatever, not based on your job and your company, but your identity in Christ, <laughs> what that would say to you and what that would say to others, that's exactly what Paul is doing. Let me tell you who I am. I'm Paul, a servant of Christ, called to be apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. It's a beautiful description. Let me unpack it for us just momentarily. All right, this idea of servanthood is a huge aspect to growing in our understanding of devotion and our relationship to Christ, right? It became a, a common uh, reference point for the church and for believers to see themselves as servants of Christ. And so here's what's taking place when you begin to look at it scripturally, is that part of what Paul teaches, and we'll explain later in this letter, letter is that we are all inherently servants, which can also be translated as slaves. We are all inherently servants and slaves to sin. But that's, that's who we are. But what the gospel does is it comes and sets us free. Sets us free from sin and death. But that freedom doesn't equate to autonomy. It just shifts our loyalty. It shifts our servanthood. We are no longer servants and slaves to sin. We are servants of Christ and slaves to righteousness. Right? And so Paul is articulating that redirection that's a clear understanding and redefining of his relationship with Jesus he has moved from who are you Lord to I am a servant of Christ and so part of what that tells us is who Jesus should be to us if we're ever going to understand our identity in Christ we have to see him as Lord and see ourselves as his servants do you like do you really do we understand the weight of that word Lord, 
Like we'll proclaim it when we're baptized, we'll sing about it, we'll, we'll pray about it, but do we live it? Right? If you're like me, and I, when I reflect on my testimony and my own story and what I think I often see us struggle with in our society is, man, we want Jesus, but we want the Savior. Right? Give me the God that's going to answer my prayers and meet my needs and give me heaven instead of hell. I'll take him all day long. I don't know if I want him as the Lord. You mean I have to die to self? You mean I have to go and, and do things that are hard? I have to go and risk? I have to go and, and, and fight oppression and, and advocate for the vulnerable? I've got to submit my own impulses and my own desires and, and choose to live for... Man, I don't know about that. I see so much of my early understanding of following Jesus was to presume upon his grace, to claim that he was Savior, to trust that I would get heaven and then live however I want. And that's finding Jesus as Savior and not seeing him as Lord. And that's an impossibility. Right? It begins with understanding his lordship, to see ourselves as servants, as we saw in Romans 12, when it says, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, that's saying make yourself available to him because you are his servant. Do you? That's where we begin to navigate our understanding of our true identity, to establish him as Lord of our lives. Paul is also called to be an apostle. That idea of calling speaks to a divine plan, right? And here it's, it's revealed with some specificity that for Paul it was to be an apostle. That's a word that's translated as messenger, and it can be used generically or, or to a specific title, and in this particular instance, 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 it is to a specific role that Paul was carrying, right, to be an apostle to the Gentiles, which we will unpack a little bit more, especially next week, right? But it doesn't allow us to just move past that and go, well, I'm not an apostle. What we see is that God, when he grabs a hold of us and gives us renewal, he gives us a specific calling, right? And that calling is further articulated with the third key to scripture in this opening verse, which is set apart for the gospel of God. To be set apart, once again, means that you're gonna look differently from the world around you, right? We shouldn't blend in. We are set apart for a particular purpose. While you may have a specific call, there is a overall narrative and plan that God has revealed in Christ this good news and all of us are set apart for that. And so when you look at those terms, right, you see just a very succinct uh, description of what we've talked about extensively for the last few weeks, right? Paul's devotion is an understanding the lordship of Jesus, that he's a servant of Christ. He has discerned God's good, pleasing, and perfect will for his life, that he has been called to be an apostle. And he is delighting in the fact that he is set apart for what is good news. It is worthy of our delight. It is worthy of our praise. It is worthy of our joy. Devotion, discernment, delight, all wrapped up in Paul revealing his identity in Christ. And so Romans 1.1 serves as a great template for you and me. Right, if we're going to break free from, from the way in which the world robs us of our identity and seek to have a better understanding of who we are called to be in Christ. It starts with that same progression, right? That our devotion is, is anchored in knowing that Jesus is Lord and to see ourselves as his servants, making ourselves available to him in every capacity. Are you doing that with your life? You giving him Sundays? giving him a few days in the week, or do you truly see him as the Lord, that everything you do is intended to serve him, the way you love your spouse, the way you love your children, the way you treat your neighbors, the way you understand 
politics, the way you engage at work, the ways you approach school, does he govern every aspect of your life? He's not wanting to be a part of your life. He wants to be Lord of your life. And then called. Do you understand what God's good, pleasing, and perfect will is for your life? Do you know what he's called you to do? That's the harder one. If, if I get one question more than any other as a, as a pastor, that tends to be kind of the nuance of it. I'm trying to figure out what God has called me to do. God's calling on my life. And so let me just give you a few things to consider as you pray through those seasons in your life. Number one, never forget his commission. Go and make disciples. I'd never forget the commission. The commission is a command that he levels to every single part of the church. All of us are called to live that part out. So never forget the commission. At the same time, think about giftings, right? The scriptures are clear that he has gifted you in unique ways. He's gifted each of us in different ways. For some, it's teaching. For others, it's hospitality. For some, it's mercy. There are all these different gifts that are constantly explained, some in the book of Romans, some in 1 Corinthians. And so have you stopped and reflected and considered, how has God gifted me? How has he equipped me? How is he shaping me? How can I use this life, this story, even my wounds, even my hurts, to make much of him? See those gifts that he's put in your life. And then, obviously, I think a natural thing that we need to at least consider when we think about calling is our vocation. The, the job, the career we pursue. Look, sometimes it works out nicely. And the vocation and the job that you have helps position you to live out so many elements of that calling, helps you able to, to easily make disciples or to have the opportunity to use your giftings, and that's, that's an incredible thing to celebrate. But we also have to acknowledge that sometimes, man, our vocation doesn't position us to make disciples, doesn't always speak to our giftings. But the reality is, is that as long as your vocation is not contrary to the heart of God or pursuing ignoble purposes or gain, you can still live out who God has created you to be and who he's called you to be regardless of your vocation. So my point is, is that yes, there are times it works well, but your job doesn't define you. And the reality is, is that you can make disciples and you use your giftings in a number of different avenues and venues, right? And so as you think through God's call on your life, have those things in mind. And then lastly, never forget that we are called to be set apart for the gospel. Right? We, we are set apart for good news. We should delight in this story because of what it means for us and what it's done for us. What we are declaring is news, and it's good news, and a world is desperate to hear it. So regardless of where you find yourself, regardless of your situation, never lose sight of the fact that your identity in Christ is to be set apart for good news. So are we doing these things well, church? Are we living as servants who are called and set apart? What a great example we get from Romans. I'll close with this. One, one final thought. We've, we've given the bulk of our time together this morning giving consideration to this question of who am I? What's my identity? And there's a lot to learn when we think about what we've seen in the early part of Romans 1. But where I want us to end our time is what does this story of Paul's life and the renewal that takes place in his life teach us about God? What does it say 
that our God can look upon a heart that is standing in approval over the execution of another, who is seeking to destroy his church and is breathing out murderous threats, can take that heart and transform it into a servant who is called and set apart. What do we learn about the depths of the renewed life that we're talking about? See, part of what I hope we see is the extent of his grace and how far his mercy can travel. That if there's anyone here today, or there's ever a moment or a season where you find yourself saying, not me. He could never use me. He's forgotten me. He hasn't gifted me. Whatever those lies are, anytime you hear those thoughts, don't forget who our God is. It's not just your identity that has been stolen and robbed, it's your heart. And when we look at the story of Paul and so many other truths of the scripture, what we see is that we have a God that will stop at nothing to reclaim it, to call it his own. Will you offer it to him? Offer your heart to Jesus and discover your true identity in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the ways in which you pursue us, the grace that you offer. Father, the opportunity for us to once again humbly come before your throne and give greater devotion, greater discernment and delight in this good news that changes us. Father, for any of us that are here today, the need to experience that sort of renewal. Father, we pray that you would offer it to us each and every day, each and every moment, and help us truly understand who we are in Christ. Let us become a church that is filled with servants who understand their calling and who understand what it means to delight in being set apart for this good news. And help us take that news to the world around us. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.